trails of troubles, rows of battles, fans of victory, we shall walk. Welcome to WEHC 90.7, and you're tuning in to She Walks with Sharon Bowers and Carly Blaylock, and we are so glad that you are with us today. We've been talking about intersectional feminist leadership and what that looks like, what that feels like. And uh, we we were uh, last, we, I, I thought we had a grand time. I don't know, maybe you all can tell us if we did or not, but we were talking about the principles of intersectional leadership and how we could actually uh, implement that and to try to get people to kind of look at what this intersectionality, what this feminist leadership, what it would look like in the workplace, specifically creating justice. And Carly, you want to re- reference our article that we were uh, talking from, and then we'll just get started right in. We wanted to to just finish our, that article on today. Yeah. So we're still working from this incredible article from Disorient titled Leadership for Social Justice, Practicing Intersectional Feminism from Helena. So we've been working through kind of the pillars of intersectional feminist leadership that are listed in this article. So last week we talked about how intersectional feminist leadership is non-hierarchical, it's profoundly humanizing, and it's relational. And so this time we're going to talk about intersectional feminist leadership is critically reflexive and it brings about social transformation. I'll read what they say about the first point, which is that critical reflexive piece. It says, reflexive refers to the process of critical self-assessment and analysis. It recognizes that patriarchy has no gender and white supremacy has no race, that we are all uh, incalculated in the system of oppression that pervades our culture. As such, the process of decolonizing our minds is an ongoing struggle rather than a one-off achievement. It remains committed to challenging destructive leadership norms and practices, which is an incredibly powerful paragraph all on its own. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I think that you know, even if we don't have an opportunity to look at, you know, all the, well, many of the decolonization theories, I mean, I think you and I can just kind of talk a little bit from our own experience. And I think that's what this is really saying. It's just asking people to, you know, be in the continual process, if you will, of self-assessment and self-analysis and just looking at who you are. I think one of the emotional intelligence, one of the uh, factors or one of the things that they talk about is Mm self-awareness. And many times in the process, especially when we're looking at things from an intersectional feminist lens, we really are not self-aware. You know, we really uh, haven't looked at this the way uh, that it could be looked at. And so uh, I think, you know, even if we don't get to all of the, the theories on today, I think I'm willing, if you are, Carly, to talk from our own experience about what this whole patriarchal piece looks like. And I mean, when they make a comment like it has no gender, that right there, I mean, that that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. And um, we've talked a little bit on this show before about, you know, just because you're a woman doesn't necessarily mean that you're a feminist, right? <laughs> um, right, which right, is, I right. think something that can get muddled. And so, you know, I love that it says patriarchy has no gender and white supremacy has no race because because we grow up in these systems, we're raised in these systems. These systems are such a part of our culture and our relationships with other people, our family dynamics, the things we see on television, the way we're socialized, our workplaces, that 
you can't escape it. And so naturally it's going to present itself in you, whether you want it to or not. And the deconstructing of that mindset is extremely important because it takes a long time to work through things. And it's something that, you know, even if you are committed to doing the work of decolonizing your mind, of challenging patriarchy within yourself where you find it, you know, it still takes a long time to do that. And it's never a finished process. It's it's ongoing all the time. It, it really is. And then when we look at these systems and we look at how power is interwoven in these uh, systems, it's really hard to kind of decide that you're going to be one of the person that's going to take on this system because invariably we use the same tools that have been used on us to try to take the system and i was reminded of this quote by audrey lord i want to read it to you 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 probably heard of it but maybe some of our audience hasn't or maybe it's just a refresher because i always come back to it when we're talking about decolonization when we're talking about deconstructing when we're we're talking about uh systems oppression systems of oppression i always come back to this and it says this is audrey lord she's a feminist was a black lesbian feminist part of the a whole process of trying to get us to see things a little different. So she says, for the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us to temporarily beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. I urge each one of us here to reach down into the de deep places of knowledge inside herself and touch the terror and loathing of any difference that lives here. See whose face it wears, then the personal as the political can begin to illuminate in all of our choices. That's Audre Lorde. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that's real powerful for me because invariably when we start deconstructing, we, we start using the same tools that, yeah. <laughs> that are used for oppression. And so that, that's really hard to, to look at how we could try to decolonize all of our systems because if we keep trying to use the same tools of colonization, then all we're doing is creating the system. And that whole piece about patriarchy, you know, is it, I, I think we can look at that, you know, the exact same way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we sort of are having two conversations within this same paragraph. Mm -hmm. One is about challenging the systems and the other is about the internal work that we have to do. And I know we've talked about on this show previously, but I think it's so important for people, especially if you're going to call yourself an ally, right, to any group, whether that's an ally to people of color, an ally to the LGBT community, whatever that may be for you, you have to do the internal work of decolonizing your mind, of challenging white supremacy and patriarchy where you find it within yourself. And it's an ongoing process. It's something that's never going to be done. But I think one of the things that we've talked about before is like when someone gets triggered by something um, and like Audre Lorde says, you know, look at the face that that wears. Right. Mm -hmm. And the first response that you have, especially if you are someone who is white or straight or, you know, cisgender, the first response cannot be to jump to arms to defend yourself or to say like, well, you know, I'm triggered. So now I'm going to lash out. Like you can't do that. You have to take a beat because if someone is correcting you or you're finding those things within yourself, you have to do the work of deconstructing that. And it's really difficult for you to work on deconstructing systems if you haven't deconstructed what's going on within you. Yes. And at, and at the same, yeah, because we are, we're talking about two different things because we're talking about, you know, how do we take a critical introspective look at and just analyze like our systems of power 
you know, hegemony? What is normative? What are we saying is, mm -hmm. is the appropriate way to interact? And then to look at, you know, the historical and the historical context. I mean, even when you started talking, one of the things that I was thinking is we often do this, Carly, we see whiteness as the standard. Yes. And anything else is a deviation from that standard norm that's so normative that even there we have to look within ourselves and stop doing the comparison, stop, you know, allow the brown and black and, you know, yellow and all the many spectrums of human sexuality to just be who they be yeah. so that it's not in response or in contrast or in reference to white dominancy. And I think that's where this whole white supremacy piece maintains itself. So when 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 this the writer of this article says that white supremacy has no race or or patriarchy has no gender, we find ourselves falling into a system that we believe that already exists. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really great way to put it. Yeah, and we're all upholding that system in in one way or another and yeah. and finding the ownership uh, of that and starting to to work to deconstruct that. And, you know, because when we're talking about systems like patriarchy and white supremacy, it's in everything, everything from our leadership models to the way we interact with each other in our romantic relationships, to the way that we interact with our children, um, to the way that we, you know, work in the workplace or whatever, it's everywhere. And so, you know, there are so many elements to it. It is so ingrained in what we consider to be, especially in, in America, what we consider to be American culture, that mm -hmm. it seems so hard to deconstruct and everything would top, top down, uh, bottom up needs to be redone. Right. And so looking at that from like a leadership perspective, which is what this article is doing, you know, they are challenging the patriarchal white supremacist history of leadership and what we traditionally think about as leadership. And how can we just deconstruct all of that and start with a new system that doesn't have those underlying factors to it? Right. And I think in order for us to even think about a decolonization movement, we have to include what we've been talking about all along, the whole intersectional piece and specifically the intersectional feminist piece, because if we don't do that then we're 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 not really looking at how these systems of oppression sustain themselves because they sustain themselves with things like patriarchy with things like white supremacy you know those are the the pin the underpinnings in in my opinion you know those are the two main underpinnings of any form of oppression for anybody and they are intricately they're woven to each other and they reinforce one another and so if we try to decolonize our minds, as this article suggests, that be in the process of doing it, seeing it as an ongoing struggle, then we have to be in the process ongoing of looking at patriarchy for what it is and looking at white supremacy for what it is. And it's really hard to define white supremacy without somebody getting angry or mad. And it's really hard to try to um, do patriarchy without somebody getting angry or mad. And the people that are getting angry or mad are the power brokers in those systems of oppression. Yes. And I think there's a lot of layers to that. One of the, um, I was listening to a podcast and the name is escaping me at the moment, but I'll see if I can find it, maybe reference it in the future. But the woman was talking about how, you know, you'll hear a lot of feminists say, well, patriarchy hurts men too. And it does. 
However, mm. it also benefits them. Otherwise, it's it wouldn't still be a system, right? Right. Um, and I think that is really important for people to understand is that there are people who are benefiting from the systems that are in place that don't want to see those systems challenged. And there's also a lot of these of effects from these systems, effects that these systems have on our culture that people may not even realize are effects of those systems, right? So when we think about, I know we've talked about like beauty standards and diet culture on this show before, that is all rooted in white supremacy and patriarchy. But we may not know that. People may not know that. So if you're participating in those systems um, and upholding those systems, you may not realize that you are also participating in patriarchy and white supremacy. So, you know, it's so pervasive that people may not even realize that's what they're doing. And when that gets challenged, that can be really difficult for people to process through. Oh yeah. I'm I'm on a I'm on another radio show uh, podcast actually in California with a colleague of mine. And he just introduced me to this book and I'm going to give you the name of it. And maybe Carly, we can read it and talk about it because it, it really confronts intersectional feminism. Mm -hmm. And so I was on his show and I was talking about intersectional feminism. And then when it was over, he said, I'd really like you to look this, read this book and come back. And so the name of the book was called Man Not, M-A-N dash not. And it was by this guy named Tommy Curry. C-U-R-R-Y, Thomas, I think it was Tommy J. Curry. Anyway, and, and he, he'd kind of written the book and had some articles and the articles were all about trying to decolonize intersectionality. Mm. And he was using it as a black male study and he was really critiquing intersectionality and how intersectionality, in his opinion, is tied to uh, a subculture of the violence theory. And I had to, you know, I had to say, wait a minute, I, I don't feel versed to talk about this, you know, yeah. because my our platform, my platform is all about intersectional feminists. So I went back and I'm reading the book. So I offer it to you as well as our audience to to start to read it because it, it gives a real a real spin on this whole patriarchal piece that we're talking about today and how, you know, it really has no gender because he talks about how you know, black men in particular, and I, I assume brown men and any other, anybody that's not part of heteronormativity, uh, it would apply to them as well, although he didn't say it, but he gives this kind of, where I am now in the book, he's he's saying that black men don't, he, he what he's saying is that there's somebody back in the 70s, it's kind of Robert Staples, I think is the one who did this study out of the Chicago School of Sociology a long time ago about black men in the black family and all of that stuff with Daniel Monahan, who was saying that absent fathers are hurting black, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but I know I'm going off, the but I got to tell a little bit of this in order for us to get there. But primarily one of the things that he says, he says that black men experience patriarchy as well, because they do not get to be the real participants in patriarchy mm -hmm. because of their race. Yeah. So he says this whole intersectional piece he, he says it's prior to Kimberly Crenshaw. And of course, I'm saying it's that Soldier of Truth way back in the early race women. It's, so I'm saying it's prior to that too. But he's actually saying that intersectionality, he, you can bring that to men because men don't get, Black men don't get the benefit, you know, like white men. So he was doing that whole double whammy that yeah. we look at it from a quadruple or or whatever kinds of variables you want to use in the intersection but he he's a proponent of that and so it struck me as one of those things you know when we claim intersectionality and I like to claim it for black women but I had to take a few moments back and say wait a minute 
maybe I need to read this book before I keep talking about it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I would love to read that book. And I think, um, I think it ties into some conversations you and I have had about oppression being intersectional, but also privilege being intersectional. Yes. Right? And, and that's what yes. makes it complicated because like you've explained before, you know, black men do experience some benefits from patriarchy because they can participate in it as men, but they don't receive the full benefits of mm -hmm. patriarchy because of racism, right? White right, supremacy. right. So it, it's very, um, it, it kind of goes back to like, there's been a lot of conversations about that within the LGBT community as well about like, you know, being white, cis, and gay is a very different experience, lived experience than being black and gay or not cisgender and gay. You know, there's a lot of different experiences that are happening there. And there's levels of privilege that come with certain experiences and the levels of oppression there as well. And it's a very complex thing when you start digging into it. It it really is. And, and I, I mean, I, I told, you know, my colleague, uh, Derek, I said, you know, I'm willing to to stretch and expand uh, and read this, but I don't think that it's the answer for everything because I do believe, just as you said, that, you know, black men, it was the same way when, you know, give black men the vote, but don't give it to black women. You know, I mean, there's always, our society is set up in a way that everyone can use it. And that's what the white suffragists did. You know, they used yes. patriarchy, yeah. you know, it, they owned it as theirs. So when they say that there's no gender, you know, I, I can really get with this statement that the writer of this article uh, wrote because you just see it in 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 all kinds of, of arenas. And so this whole piece, you know, I guess in some ways, Carly, this whole piece falls into, which we haven't talked about greatly, but that whole identity politics thing, because that's kind of where, to me, intersectionality and all of the the uh, the theories that go with that critical race all of those kinds of things find themselves locked into that whole identity politics thing and 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 when we start looking at patriarchy having no gender you know we, you and I just today we've been talking about some of the instances where that comes up yeah but then when we start looking at white supremacy has no race that was one of those things that I thought wait a minute and then I, I think I get it because we uphold those systems. If we didn't uphold them, they wouldn't exist. Is right. that what we're saying? Is that, is that, that is, that's what, I think that's the point that this article is making. And I think the point that the article is making as well is that I think we've talked on this show before about like proximity to power, right. And how that can kind of warp people's perceptions of privilege and oppression. And, you know, we see um, politicians who are people of color spouting the same talking points that are white supremacist talking points, right? Um, and I think that, you know, there can be a lot of arguments made as to why that happens. But there are people that are within the system and that are not challenging the system or that are within the system and maybe uphold some of those values themselves. I'm not, certainly not the person to speak on that. I'm a white woman and I'm also not super educated on how, you know, that works. But I, you know, I think that might be one of the other points that this article is making. Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, it's important for us to kind of kind of look at that. And then, you know, some people would say that these systems exist sui generis or they exist in and of their own self and of their own kind. So where do we get to the root? Mm -hmm. You know, we use colonization as one of the primary roots. But how do we really get to the root of things like patriarchy and white supremacy, how do they exist? Do they exist in and of themselves? Where do they start? 
you know, how's that work? And, mm-hmm. and there's, there's, a, there's a group of Christian women that I belong to. And, you know, we went back and we've looked at, there's a book that was written a long time ago. And we looked at how that all starts, you know, people, especially from a Judeo-Christian perspective, God is man. So God is the head, you know, all of those kinds of things can be right back down. The man is over the woman. The woman is over the children. You, you know, you can see it come down many layers, but how does it exist in and of itself? And that, that's the sociologist, well, the Latin term for <laughs> sui generis, but how does that exist? How does white supremacy exist in and of itself? How does patriarchy exist yeah. in and of itself? This is such a great question because I actually, again, was just listening to a podcast. The guest on the podcast was Sean Norris. Um, she is the author of Bodies Under Siege, How Far the Right Attacks on Reproductive Rights Went Global. So she's talking about reproductive rights. So she's primarily talking about patriarchy, but she also talks about white supremacy as well. And that was one of the questions that her book asks, and it can't really find an answer. And one of the questions is, is it a top-down thing or is it a bottom-up thing, right? Mm. Is it that the people in power have told us how to feel about, you know, whatever, and are perpetuating these systems? And is it, you know, is that sort of a conscious thing that's happening or... Is it the mass majority of people are keeping those systems in place and have these feelings and these, you know, desires for this kind of culture that's based on white supremacy and patriarchy? So, you know, she was looking particularly at reproductive rights. So, you know, looking at the attack on abortion rights, is that something that people have been told to fear or is it something that is a general feeling that the majority of people have that has led to these, you know, legislative changes. And it was something that it's probably both, but it's complicated. Yeah. And, and, and especially when we look at, you know, like, and the one that we don't, nobody really likes to talk about and everybody gets real quiet when we start talking about white supremacy. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's horrible, but it's, it's almost like today, I was just watching the whole thing about January 6th and the Proud Boys and my sister and I, we were talking and we were talking about Enrique, I don't know, Henry Enrique, I can't think of what his last name is, but the the chairperson of the Proud Boys and he identifies, and this is how this is so crazy, he identifies as an African, an Mm Afro-Cuban and yet his theology is so oppressive and you would have, you, you would think, well, wow, how does that really happen that an Afro-Cuban born in America, born in Miami, would have such oppressive ideology as their own and identify as such? Yeah. I, I don't I don't I don't get that. And I think that's how how that white supremacy, how, you know, white is better. White systems are better. White beliefs are better. White ideologies are better. The lighter your skin is better. All of that is drilled into us. And I think that the education system plays a major role in doing that, Carly. And I know I'll probably get in trouble, but I I really do believe that our education system is what perpetuates that because it's everywhere you go. Yeah. Our TV stations, I've been getting ready to call our TV stations. You know, I know that there are not many African-American teachers, but even little simple things when they do the teacher of the week or month or whatever, I don't know how often they do it, but they celebrate a teacher. And that teacher is always white and generally is a white woman, which mm-hmm. gets more into, you know, the roles that women can play and the roles that women cannot. But, you know, that's a form, the socializing agencies of the education and media combined together is one of the, the, the underpinnings of white supremacy. Because what that says is that the only people who can teach are white and particularly white women. 
and we celebrate them. We laud them. We've never in all of our sending in for who's the best teacher. There's never been, or, or I have not seen, let me say that because I don't watch TV. I just see it with my sister sometimes, but there's never been a person of color. Yeah. I mean, it just goes back to like, it's everywhere. It's, it's in everything. It's pervasive. But do you wonder this, Carly? And and I say that when people say that, they're really saying, I wonder. So let me say, I wonder, you know, this belief that, that white people are somehow superior and therefore they're smarter, they're whatever. And so they should dominate society so much so that you have to exclude and make a detrimental situation for everybody else. How does that system perpetuate? Yeah, no idea. Yeah, but that that's when we start that process of decolonizing our minds. I think that's why it's important, as the writer of this article said, how important it is to be in the process of critical self-assessment yeah. and, and analysis, because how do we let it happen? I mean, one of the answers is violence, right? Yeah. But I don't think it's as simple as it's just violence. I don't think you said violence, not silence, right? Yeah. Violence yeah, yeah, with a V, yeah. 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 Um, but I don't yeah. think that's the only answer. Um, I think there's a lot of other contributing factors, but I think that's the first one that jumps into my mind. Well, and that's the one that we've seen, especially in our age and in the Americas that we know, that's the one that we've seen used the most, mm-hmm. you know, through all of the the systems, you know, the KKK, uh, the period of enslavement, Jim Crow. I mean, we've seen violence is always attached to that. And even now, you know, when we're talking about the police brutality and those kinds of things, we see a disproportionate amount of violence that is extracted upon people of color. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I think violence, yeah, is, is part of that, but I guess how, what do we, what, what would you do or what do you think, what could we do or what could we tell our audience to do, you know, to start in the process of decolonizing our minds? What's one thing you think you could do? I'm going to be thinking too, but what, what, where could we start? To well, decolonize our mind. I mean, I think again, that's a very big question, but I, I think I can just speak from my own personal experience and what I try to do. I try to read books that are written by authors who do not share my lived experience, a lot of which is nonfiction, but I think also reading fiction by authors who do not share your lived experience is extremely important. Mm-hmm. Um I try to listen to podcasts and consume media that is uh, made by people who do not share my lived experience that helps me to understand, you know, history in a broader way and the social um, social justice in a broader way. Um, the more that I can do that, I think the more that your your mind kind of expands and that's been really powerful. But I also work really hard to constantly check myself, um, which is a daily exercise, you know, um, check your privilege, I guess, is is what I try to do right. um, every day. And obviously, I'm not perfect at it by any means and continue to to work on it every day. But that's those are the the main things that I try to do from an internal perspective of like decolon- mm-hmm. decolonizing my mind. I think when we start talking about decolonizing systems, it gets much more tricky. Those are some internal things that I do just for myself to to try and be a better human. Yeah. And I guess, you know, that whole, for me, I guess it's that whole awareness is every time I hear or see myself falling into the routine that says, this is the way we operate. Like sometimes I hear people say all the time, you know, white people are better at this or whatever. When I start hearing those kinds of things, I try to check that. If I hear somebody else say it, I try to check them as well. But I try to check myself. If I start saying those things like, 
falling into the, the traditional trap of seeing something or experiencing something only one way. Yeah. I think that's one of the things. So I, when I start to check my own beliefs about situations, like what do I really believe about this? And, and, you know, Carly, sometimes it's hard, you know, when you, uh, when you look at who has the money, you, you know, some of those things are, are overwhelming when you say, when you say like, well, I'm equal. And then you, you look at someone else's house and then you look at your house and you're like, well, my house is never going to be like that house. Yeah. It's just little things like that. And then when you see the side of town, quote unquote, that black people live on or brown people, and you see the side of town that uh, white identifying people live on, you're like, there's something different about this. But then it kind of goes back to what you said. You always can go back to that whole power, that whole violence, that whole institutionalization of white supremacy. And I think that's what we don't talk about enough is that white supremacy has been institutionalized. It is yeah. normative. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. And I think the last thing I would add is that those of us with privilege, whether that is white privilege, straight privilege, cis privilege, uh, male privilege, use that because we will be in spaces where people will feel comfortable saying things to us and behaving in ways that are, that uphold patriarchy and white supremacy. And it is our job to call that out when we find it. Mm -hmm. So it kind of gets back to my most recent theory of poking holes in solidarity. Absolutely. <laughs> We're going to poke holes in that solidarity. Yeah. yeah you're going to have to poke holes in that solidarity <laughs> because if we don't, um, it, it's not going to work. And I think sometimes it's like you said earlier, reading books and kind of debunking things like Thanksgiving, you know, or yeah. I lived in Australia you know, and looking at the indigenous people, the aborigines there, you know, I mean, just seeing how, how inconsequential, how somebody can take something, claim it as their own and weave a narrative. And that, that gets back to my whole thing about language as a task of world building. So a lot of what we say more than what we do, I think is what supports this whole notion of things, of systems like patriarchy and white supremacy. I completely agree. So if we were going to tell our listeners anything, what could we could what could we tell them? I mean, uh, when we see that statement that says patriarchy has no gender and white supremacy has no race. I mean, what do you tell the average listener when they hear that coming from our show? I mean, I think it speaks for itself. <laughs> <laughs> um I think that's something that we should definitely talk about and explore. Um, we are coming to the end of our time. Oh, are we? I didn't yeah. even look. <laughs> um, so it might be something for us to explore next week. Um, okay. <laughs> and we want to make sure we cover our last pillar in this article as well. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about social transformation and, you know, kind of finish up this critically reflexive piece. Because I think this is an important conversation and hopefully everyone is getting a lot out of it. Hopefully everyone is, you know, coming away with some thoughts and some ideas, but we will definitely explore this more in our time together next week. Wow. Well, goodbye everybody. And I'm sad <laughs> that we, we, maybe, yeah, we'll, we'll, answer, we'll try to answer that the next time. <laughs> yes. Thank you everyone for being with us. Pass on the victory. We shall walk.